Beloved saints, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God is eternal and it abides forever. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us, for what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer afflictions just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing uh, on our time in it. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. Fold that darkness with the light of your grace and peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith. Increase our understanding. Allow us to receive you through your word, we pray. Let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures. And may your spirit be with us as we read and as we hear. And may he grant that we might delight in all that we encounter in your word. Amen. You may be seated. We all know it. We've all heard it a million times. Uh, The expression goes like this, you can't take it with you. And it's talking about uh, death and and what happens to everything that you possess when you die. Uh, Your money, your house, your car. You can't take it all with you, so what do you do? Now, uh, you know the different approaches people take. 
there are those who decide that uh, if they can't take it with them, it's their job to make sure that every last penny is spent uh, before they pass, that they've enjoyed every possible pleasure while they have time. Uh, They are self-focused. They are focused only on themselves and they assume that their resources are there for their enjoyment and their enjoyment only. And if they can't enjoy them when they're gone, they better enjoy them now because they don't want to leave anything behind. (laughs) Uh, Then there are those uh, who are constantly thinking about the people they will leave behind when they go. Uh, they want to make sure that, that there's, there's money left to take care of them when they're gone. Uh, these are the people who pre-buy their funeral plots and pay for their services. Uh, they take care of all their arrangements. And, and you, you feel like even when they're gone, they're still taking care of their loved ones. Uh, they have lists, lots of lists. Uh, here's who you call when, when this happens. Here's who you call when that happens. Uh, here are all the account numbers, and here are all the passwords and the logins. And these are the people that even talk to their friends and say, Hey, when I'm gone, can you check in from time to time? Make sure my wife's okay. Can you check in on my kids? Can you uh, see if anything needs to be done? Uh, if you've ever loved someone other than yourself, uh, truly love someone, You know the fear of leaving them behind. And the fear, the fear isn't for you. It's for those you leave. You want to be there for them. You want to care for them. Even when you're no longer there to care for them. And that's not a bad instinct. Far from it. Uh, That itself is to imitate Jesus Christ. I wonder if you remember what he said on the cross. It's recorded for us in John 19. Uh, Moments before his death, he looked down at at John, who records the Gospel of John, who who John says was Jesus' beloved disciple. And he looks down at his mother and John, and he says to the woman, Behold your son. And he says to John, Behold your mother, And and the gospel goes on and says, From that moment, John took her into his house and cared for her as if she were his own mother. There's Jesus uh, suffering the most excruciating pain the world has ever known. And he's caring for his mom as he leaves her behind, making sure she's provided for and cared for. This is what he did. He made provisions for those he loved because he knew his departure was unavoidable. It was coming. And so he made provisions for it. And and we're called to imitate that, not just with our own families, but but even with our church as well. And that's what we want to consider uh, today as we continue to look at at 1 Thessalonians. And so much of what this letter deals with is Paul's absence from those whom he loves in Thessalonica. He led this, uh, these, these, saint, these Christians to the Lord. Uh, and last week we looked at how uh, the Thessalonians were tempted to interpret Paul's absence as proof that he didn't love them. 
And his response was to rehearse the facts of all all that he and his associates suffered in order to bring the gospel to them. Uh, And and he he really interprets his ministry in Thessalonica uh, in terms of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, we we didn't just pour out um, the gospel to you. We, We poured out our lives. We offered ourselves up for you. They brought the gospel to the Thessalonians at great cost. Without selfish gain. Even laboring when they weren't preaching uh, so as to pay their own way, so as to not be a, a burden on the people in Thessalonica. And so now uh, Paul, the author of First Thessalonians, uh, continues to address his ongoing absence. And, and he's... he's Having said, you know, when we were with you, we we poured out our lives for you. We love you. He's now going to look at his absence in terms of Jesus' own absence from the church since he's ascended into heaven. Because Paul has no other way of understanding his life and his ministry except in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and, and his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his future return. And so my, my hope as we look at this section of First Thessalonians this morning is to drive home this point. Absence is an unavoidable but not permanent aspect of life in the church that Jesus has overcome by his Holy Spirit and through fellow Christians. And that's what I want to drive home and show us in our text this morning. And uh, it, it's this reality that helps Paul understand how he can care for the Thessalonians, even though he himself is unable to return. Uh, it's a pattern for us to follow today. And so what I want to do is spend some time up front looking at Jesus and the pattern he set. I'll look at Jesus, the, the one we imitate uh, so that we w- might understand what we are called to imitate, and then we want to see how Paul himself follows that pattern and interprets his own ministry as an extension of Jesus' own love and ministry to the church. And then finally, I'd like to close by bringing some thoughts on how that should shape Reformation and us as a church family uh, in light of this, and how we might even prepare for the future. Now, like I said, uh, we want to start by looking at first at the Jesus we imitate. <laughs> uh, you can't imitate Jesus if you don't understand him. And we want to better understand how he prepared uh, his disciples for his departure and his absence, uh, knowing that shortly after the, the, his death and resurrection that he would ascend to the Father's side and he would no longer physically be on earth. And we also want to see what drove his preparations. As, as I said earlier, um, John 13 through 17 uh, record Jesus' final hours. Chapter 13 records the foot washing. Chapters 14 through 16 are what we call the upper room discourse. Uh, it's just this private discussion between Jesus and his disciples where he's preparing them for his absence. And then chapter 17 is called the high priestly prayer. It's how uh, Jesus prayed uh, for his disciples and how he continues to pray for us. Uh, The men's study recently read uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book, um, Lessons from the Upper Room, on the Upper Room Discourse. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Very uh, 
encouraging book. Uh, But the context of this discussion with the disciples is Jesus' final night with them. Time is short. Uh, Early on, uh, Judas leaves to go betray Jesus. Uh, He's washed their feet. He's served them the Last Supper. And yet, as we saw from our, 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 our declaration of pardon this morning, what drove his time and all that he did for his disciples was his love. Remember that verse we read uh, in the Declaration of Pardon? When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them even at the cost of his own life. But, but loving them to the end doesn't just mean, uh, like I said, until he died, but it, it's loving him, loving them at all costs. And so in other words, what, what John is telling us is there is nothing more important, nothing more precious to Jesus than his people. He counted our salvation more important than his own safety, his own life. Uh, beloved, I don't know how to overstate this. I don't know even how to come close to accurately stating it. That's how much he loves. We are his joy. We are his life. We are his crown. Uh, we are everything to Jesus. Uh, there, that, that word crown, uh, there's two kinds of crowns in the Greek language. There's the crown of royalty, but there's also a victor's crown that when you, you won a competition, you'd be given like a laurel wreath or whatever. It's a victor's crown. Uh, one is a sign of office. One is a sign of victory. Uh, when, it, when, when, when we're referred to as his crown, uh, what, what it means is we are his reward for living a perfect life, for doing everything necessary to save us, uh, giving his own life in our place. Uh, we are his reward for being willing to face the fires of hell, for, for going into combat with Satan himself and conquering him, and conquering sin, and conquering death. All for us. We are his crown. We are his reward. We are his prize. That's why he did what he did. To say that we matter to Jesus is like the biggest understatement in the history of the world. We're everything to him. When we're cut, he bleeds. When we're hurt, he cries. We are his life. And so that final night with his disciples, as he's facing the fires of hell, his focus is on preparing them for his absence. He gets straight to the point. He says, in a little while you will see me no longer. In a little while again you will see me. They can't see it, but he knows that there are forces at work that, and everything is about to change. They think they're having dinner. He knows where Judas is. He knows where the Roman guards are. He knows what Pilate's doing. He knows what Herod's doing. More importantly, he knows what his father's doing and why he's come. And it was all set in motion uh, back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. Do you remember what God told Satan? 
I'm going to put enmity between you and the seed of the woman, your seed and her seed. You will, will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. I'm going to send someone to do battle with you. And yes, you'll injure him. He will not come out unscathed. But it will be your end. The Bible teaches us that while in one sense the crucifixion of Jesus happened according to the foreordained will of God, it was in another sense an act of Satan seeking to injure and even conquer Jesus. And Jesus gets all of that. That event, that the death of Jesus on the cross would change everything. Salvation for God's people would be accomplished. Satan would be conquered. Which means that, that all that he came to do would, would be accomplished. All that, he, all that he had to do on earth was, was done. And so after three days in the grave, he would rise again. And after a short time with his disciples, he would ascend into heaven. And he would stay there awaiting that final day when he would return to take us home. This is what he's talking about when he tells his disciples, in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while again you will see me again. His absence from them would not be permanent. There would be a day when they would see his face again. But what about the time in between? Between his departure and his return... You know what they're thinking? Do we matter? What about us? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, that's what occupies his thoughts that night. So he emphatically states to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not abandon you. He, he had put plans in place. He had made provisions for those he loved. We saw the provisions he made for his mother with John. But what about the church? Uh, What about all of his children? There's two things that, that the Gospel of John goes on to tell us Jesus provided. The first and most important was the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus repeatedly calls the Comforter. Uh, Perhaps you have heard the Greek word uh, here, the paraclete. Not parakeet, paraclete. There's an L in there. Uh, The the Holy Spirit was sent uh, to be with God's people in, in the absence of their Savior to comfort them, to assure them. Uh, that they are that they're children of God to to intercede with them and for them uh, to give them the grace to grow as God's children so that they might become more and more like Jesus. But that wasn't all he left for them. Uh, a few chapters later, after after the death and the resurrection, Jesus sits there at the uh, the seashore with with Peter, Peter who had denied him three times, and and Jesus restores him three times. And, and do you remember what he says to Peter when Peter says, "I love you, Lord." He says, "Good." Then Peter, go feed my sheep, tend my sheep, care for my little lambs. In other words, just as he entrusted his mother to John, he entrusted his church to leaders who would bring his word, bring his rule, bring his discipline, bring his admonition, bring his encouragement to the family of God. 
And Jesus understood these gifts, the Holy Spirit and, and, and the laborers in his church, as his own ongoing presence with them. Do you remember what he says in the Great Commission as he sends his apostles out in the world, right? He says, you, you know, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not going out alone. I am present in you and through you to those to whom you will minister. In other words, even though he was physically absent, he continues to be with us until the end of the age by his Holy Spirit and through the ministry of the church. He has not left us as orphans. He loves us too much. We are his joy. We are his glory. We are his crown. And he will do anything and he will do everything necessary to care for us in his absence. An absence that is temporary, not eternal. And on the last day, when that temporary absence is done, he will come and he will call us home and we will see his face. We will be physically with him. Until then, we are told that he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He prays for us day and night. In fact, as I said, chapter 17 of John's gospel records what that prayer looks like for us. That's how much he loves us. So why rehearse all of this? Uh, you're thinking, is this sermon on First Thessalonians? <laughs> or, 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 or John? Well... The answer is simple. I think once we have all of those things in mind, we'll be better able to understand what Paul tells the Thessalonians about his absence because he interprets it in terms of Jesus' absence when he had to go and be with the Father in heaven. What we find in our passage is nothing short of Paul imitating Jesus. It opens, doesn't it, with with his des- and it, and it closes with his desire and his longing to see their faces. He says it in chapter two, verse seventeen, and chapter three, verse ten. I want to see your faces. I want to be with you physically. That's his desire, but he says he's been hindered from it, and he sees the hindering from it both as God's sovereign plan and as Satan's attack. He says we warned you there was going to be affliction, and and there has been. God warned us, it's his plan, but he also says Satan hindered us. I don't think that these are any more contradictory than the cross of Jesus being God's plan and Satan's assault. Paul's simply acknowledging that there are cosmic forces at work that the Thessalonians might not be aware of. If it were up to Paul, he'd be in Thessalonica. He's tried. Many times, and every time he's been prevented. But his heart, his desire, is to be with them. After all, he tells us in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, they are his joy, his glory, his crown. They're the reason he suffered so much. He did it all to serve them, to win them. Not for himself, but for his God. They're, they're his victory crown, a demonstration of his faithful ministry that he, that he ran the race well. They are the crown that, that he will lay at his Savior's feet, offering them up in joy and gratitude. 
They're what made all that he endured worth it. They don't understand how much he loves them. That when they're cut, he bleeds. That when they're hurt, he cries. That they are his life. He's on pins and needles waiting for Timothy's return with a report on how they're doing. Look at verse 8. For now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. In other words, despite whatever adversity Paul is dealing with, if they're okay, he's okay. Any parent understands that. The love of Jesus for those, uh, for these people, the, the love that Jesus feels for them has shaped Paul. It's transformed Paul. But is that it? Does he just say, I love you? Isn't that enough? No. Until he sees them again, is that all he offers? And the answer is no. Taking his cue from Jesus, he does the next best thing to actually being with them. He sent someone to them, Timothy. Timothy is is Paul's most trusted companion. Sending Timothy is like cutting cutting off his own arm or cutting out his own heart and sending it. Uh, Paul repeatedly calls Timothy his child, his son. And to send Timothy, in Paul's mind, is to send a piece of Paul himself. And I think that's what he's referring to um, when he says that though he's absent from them in the body, he is not in heart. He's referring to sending Timothy to them. He trained Timothy. He's poured into Timothy. He depends upon Timothy. In sending him, Paul sent everything he could. It was a sacrifice. And he tells them why in in chapter 3, verse 2. It was to establish and exhort you in the faith. And it's lost in the English, but this word translated exhort is just the verb of paraclete that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. Timothy is your paraclete. He is your comforter. That's why I sent him. I couldn't be there, but I knew you needed comfort in my absence, and so I sent him. He's there to comfort you, to to remind you that you are God's children, that your suffering is not in vain, and to help you grow in God's grace so that that you might be more like Jesus. Paul was prevented from coming to them for a short time, but he doesn't leave them as orphans. He sends someone to care for them and watch over them. But that's not all he's done. Look at verses 10 through 13. He intercedes for them. He prays night and day that God would guide and direct them, that he would help them abound in love so that they might be holy and blameless, ready for the Lord's return. Because Paul can't understand his ministry in any other way except through Jesus Christ and his ministry, he has to now intercede for those he loves even though he's absent from them. So he understands his suffering in terms of the suffering of Christ. He understands his absence in terms of the absence of Christ. And now he understands his ministry of intercession in terms of the one who ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He sends a comforter and he prays. Jesus did it. Paul does it. But what about us? 
And perhaps we should start with Paul's instructions to the Corinthians. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, Jesus didn't just set an example for the apostles. He set an example for all of us. If Paul follows his example, we would do well to do the same. So what does that look like for Reformation? Well, it starts with the leadership. It starts with the pastors. Pastors have two options. One is the temptation to build a kingdom of self where the church is defined by the pastor and his personality. I think we all know what this looks like. When that happens, everyone in the church is terrified of something happening to the pastor because they don't think that the church could survive his absence. That that if something happens to him, if he leaves, if he dies, everything will come crumbling down. The church is dependent upon his physical presence. Let me connect the dots here. Christ's church was meant to survive his physical absence. If your church can't survive your absence, something is terribly wrong. If that's the case, the church is yours and it is not his. It is not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ if it cannot survive your absence. So what's the other option? It's to follow the example of Paul, following the example of Jesus, and to recognize that absence is an unavoidable, albeit temporary, not permanent, aspect of life in the church, and that Jesus overcomes it with the Holy Spirit and with fellow Christians. If we understand that, we can be prepared for it. Pastors must start following Jesus' example, being shaped by the cross, Ministering in the midst of affliction, sacrificially, as we saw last week. But it also means that, that we must prepare for the inevitable. That a time will come when our ministry draws to a close. Part of that means teaching our congregation to understand that, that this is Jesus' church. It's not mine. It's not Pastor Isaac's. It's Jesus'. Don't get me wrong, beloved. You are my joy. You are my glory. You are my crown. I want nothing more than the best for you. And my greatest joy will be to lay any good I have done at the feet of my Savior in gratitude and praise. But it does mean realizing that the healthiest church is the one that's prepared for the next minister to come along and carry things forward. Another should be able to come in and comfort you in the faith, to lead you again and again to the foot of the cross so that, so that Christ might be formed in you. Because, because at his best, a minister is, is nothing more than Jesus' own ambassador of comfort. I literally have nothing to offer you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the confidence that He will one day come again and you will see His face. 
It is the message, not the messenger, that matters. And so I can rest easy. That should something happen to me, or the time come for me to step aside and retire, not if, when, (laughs) that it's okay. Because another can come along and it'll be like I never left. As the session sees that day draw closer, we'll do our best to prepare for it. Because that's what you do for those you love. You prepare for your absence. Ministry from start to finish is shaped by Jesus Christ. The Christian life from start to finish is shaped by Jesus Christ. And so it's fitting this morning that we would end our time with a couple portraits of Jesus' love. Because that's what this is all about. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we will have just in a moment, are pictures of what Jesus endured on the cross to save us. The horrific death on the cross. Uh, John and and, and, uh, James, the two brothers, um, who you have to love... uh, They come up towards the end of Jesus' ministry and say, Can we sit at your right and left hand in glory? Not too big a question. I mean, it's a small favor. And he says, Are you willing to drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized? He calls the cross both his cup and his baptism. Both of these are pictures of the cross of Jesus Christ. And why did he go to the cross? It's because we're his joy, his glory, his crown. It's because he loves us. He loves us to the end at the cost of his own life. But we use pictures of his death because his flesh and blood is not in a tomb. It's not on this earth. He was raised and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. These are reminders to us that he is physically absent from this world. But they are reminders that he has not left us as orphans, but he has sent his spirit, his apostles, and he has sent others to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to help us grow in Jesus. The reminders to us that he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. And they are reminders to us that he will return to take us home, and we will behold him face to face. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive these wonderful gifts this morning. Father, we long to see Jesus, to behold his face, to be with him physically. We long for that day when he will come and take us home to be with him. Until that day comes, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that you have given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us your church, and that you are present with us in and through these gifts. Grant us contentment, grant us growth, grant us the grace to walk in this world as those possessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to show his love to one another and be glorified in and through us, we pray. Amen.